The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Aaron. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, a few years ago, I had a student in my small group. He would always uh, speak to me in pictures. Uh, he would come in, he'd say, oh, this is what's going on in my life right now. And he'd paint this picture where we could all just like kind of get it and understand it. And uh, one of the pictures he shared one time, I think helps kind of lead into our time this morning. He said, I feel like my walk with the Lord is like I'm in a rowboat. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going towards the Lord, but I'm always looking back. I'm looking back maybe at past sins I've committed or, or things I'm leaving behind. But it's like it's hard for me to look at the glory of Christ and fix my heart on Him. And I'm like, I'm always, and then I'll turn around, you know, and I'm like, I'm looking at Jesus, but then I'm, I'm remembering, but I'm moving the wrong, you know, it's like, I always feel like I'm looking the wrong direction. Um, so as, keep that image in mind. I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to join us in our next few moments as we look at this text together. Lord, thank you for this moment to stop and to fix our eyes on you and all of your goodness and your glory. And may we be transformed more and more into your likeness because of our time in your word. May this text deeply encourage your people this morning as we are seeking to follow you. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, so right now, this very moment in time, we live between two Advents. There's the first Advent, Jesus, the Son of God, is born of a virgin into the world. And then Christ the King is coming again, the second Advent. And we're here in the middle of that first Advent. You're made right with God. Those who place their, their trust in Christ, forgiven, ransomed, restored, declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's amazing. That's you're adopted into his family when you put your faith in Christ. That's true. That's a reality. Our sins were forever dealt with. God says the reign of evil in the world was broken. But the first advent. But listen to this. God said this to his son. He said, after he rose from the dead, after he ascended into heaven, he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's still happening. God has defeated evil, yet he's still defeating it. About us, he says in Hebrews 10, for by a single offering, Jesus made, he has perfected, he has perfected for all time 
Those who are being made perfect. Those who are being sanctified. You are perfected for all time while God is making you perfect into his image. That's where we are right now. The Bible clearly teaches God's defeated evil, yet he is defeating evil. And he will finish at the second advent. He clearly proclaims anyone who trusts in Christ is made perfect in his sight and yet is in the process of being made perfect. So take a deep breath if you struggled getting everybody out of the house this morning. Like, that's the reality. God says that's true about you. That's what it's like to be at this place in time. And he says, I've begun my work in you and I will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus, that second advent. Okay, so so much of the Bible is teaching us how do we live in this world as a forgiven child of God who still has sin remaining. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you my Holy Spirit, my comforter to encourage, convict, to lead, to guide, to strengthen, empower. I'm gonna give you each other. That's why Hebrews says over and over, don't stop meeting together. I'm leaving you my word. I'm leaving you prayer. You can speak to your heavenly father. This is about how to live as a perfect sinner. I feel like a perfect sinner sometimes, but in a different respect, right? The Bible is like, this is how we live in this world as a perfect sinner. So here's the picture. Have you ever used Roundup or any kind of weed killer? I know there's lots of commercials about that right now on TV, but what happens when you use it? You cover the leaves with this chemical. It functionally destroys the plant's ability to receive the sun, to perform photosynthesis. It's functionally dead. As a result, it can no longer receive and process nourishment. Don't you just kind of wish that when you sprayed the weeds, they immediately just like burst into little flames, came to ashes and were scattered by the wind? Wouldn't that be incredible? Like the instant result in your garden is just the way you want it. Flower bed, perfect. Your kids would love to do the weeding if that was true. But that's not how it works, is it? You spray the plant, and within a few seconds, you can't remember if you sprayed it or not. You're, like, you're spraying everything four or five times by the end. You're like, did I do it? Did I not? You come back that night, right? Oh, nothing. In fact, I think they grew a little today. We're like, what's going on? The next morning, it's the same. Second day, it's often not till the third or fourth day, you start to see the edges begin to brown and wither. The plant is functionally dead. It can no longer live. It's, it's death is certain, but it's still dying. So that's a small picture of the state of sin and evil in the world. It is defeated, and yet it's being defeated. The death blow is dealt, and yet it's not fully gone. It's still there. You still see it in the flower bed of your heart. So this is, I think, is one of the hardest realities for Christians to live in. We want to be here. Perfect. Like sin is gone. I'm not hurting my family anymore. No more sorrow and struggle. I want to be here. But then we fail. When we hear those angry words coming out of our mouth, you lay in bed at night, right? And you rethink every conversation. And you realize how judgmental or how angry, how selfish, how deeply needy or insecure or self-glorifying you sounded. And now not only do you know that, but everyone you interacted with knows that. And you're just overwhelmed with your condition. And you're like, this is still true. Am I, did the gospel work on me? It's enough to make you ask, do I have faith? Am I a Christian maybe? 
You ever done something, a sin, maybe one that you just hate, that you swore 7,826 times you're never going to do again? 7,827. It's enough to make you doubt your faith. I've been studying a sonnet this week that my daughter, Kate, shared with me. She actually memorized it. She could come up now. She's like, okay, maybe not. Uh, it's John Donne's Holy Sonnet number 14. I'm sure you've studied at some point. Listen to what he writes. It's over 400 years old. Um, but he describes the condition of living between two advents, what it feels like. Um, it's only 14 lines. I will, it, 400 years is a long time ago, so I'll, I'll kind of interpret it as we go. Uh, he writes, batter my heart, three-person God. Think of a battering ram. Batter my heart. For you as yet, but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. He's saying, you're being too gentle on me. You're just knocking. Knock the door down. He says, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Don't be so gentle. I need you to break this sinful heart and take over. He says this, I, like a usurped town, to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. It's like I'm like a city occupied by an enemy force, and I'm struggling to open the gates to you, but not successful. He says this, reason, your viceroy in me, reigning in me, Reason me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Even my mind, I hear it more justifying sin than seeking to follow you. And then he says this, yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, which means gladly. That's what he says. But am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. With the most stark description possible, he describes what it feels like to live with indwelling sin. He says, I feel betrothed to your enemy, engaged to the evil one. Now, obviously, he's writing this at a time of deep discouragement and sorrow over sin. He's probably failed in a way that deeply hurt people he vowed to love. And he's tired of it. He's tired of struggling and hurting those around him. And he's longing for this, the second advent. The day when Christ comes in, our minds, our reason works the way God made it to. Our hearts work and love the things they're made to love. And our bodies are restored. Do you know those feelings? The sorrows of another struggle, the longing for a heart and mind that is no longer tainted with sin. That's the context for the book of Hebrews. It's written to Christians struggling to live between the advents. They want to be here, sin done away with, evil gone from the world, persecution over. But they're here. And we learn throughout the book that because of the struggle, some are actually considering returning to Judaism. They're looking backwards. And this book is written to those who find it really hard to be here, who are tempted to look back. So the second line of Don's uh, Holy Sonic says, except you enthrall me, 
I never shall be free. The, writers of, the writer of Hebrews is seeking to enthrall our hearts, a people who are constantly looking back, who feel stuck in the middle. He's seeking to enthrall our hearts with wonder at the supremacy of Christ. He's saying we can live here in the middle with hope, peace, love, and joy because this is coming. This is real and it will be here and Christ will reign. So he's fixing our hearts and minds there. So the first five verses of Hebrew, if you remember in our studies, listen to what he said. It's like, it's like rapid fire. Jesus is God's son, the heir of all things, the one through whom God created the world, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He's holding the universe together now by his hand. He's made purification for sins. He sits at God's right hand. Then he comes to verse six through nine, really four through nine. And he makes this argument. He says, Jesus is far superior to the angels. Okay, why this argument? Why angels? It's actually pretty interesting uh, to me. They believe the Old Testament law, in fact, verses say that the Old Testament law was delivered to Moses by the angels. And so it's as if the Jews are saying to the Christians, look, Judaism, we have the word of God delivered by angels to us. And they're looking at that and they're, they're processing that. So it's like, it seems as if the early Christians going through hard times, they're putting these different worldviews on the table in front of them and they're kind of comparing them. They're talking through pros and cons of each. Well, that, this one makes sense about this part of life and this one has angels and, and, and this like they're equals and they're trying to decide. That's actually a real temptation, isn't it? when life's really hard, when we're in the middle time, when faith seems not present? And why does our faith often seem not present? Because we're looking for perfection as the evidence of faith rather than repentance. But it's easy to compare other worldly ways of understanding desire, understanding weakness, understanding struggle and calling. And we're like, oh, that makes more sense there maybe, and that one here. The writer of Hebrews comes in and just kind of knocks the table over. He's like, there's no comparison. There is no equal. I know this time's difficult, but victory is certain. Jesus is the righteous and eternal king. So the Jews are saying, we have the word of God delivered by angels. But Hebrews says, we have the son of God, the word of God, escorted by angels. And when he comes, they fall down and worship him. Look at verse six, he writes, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he makes a command saying, let all God's angels worship him. He's speaking of Jesus' birth at that first advent. I think one of the most incredible parts of that night, I saw one of our, our younger students out in the hall just singing this, glory, just singing that song out. When the angels filled the sky, glory to God in the highest. That's one of the most spectacular moments as they worship the newborn king. And we'll see angels, they're gonna appear at the tomb when Christ is raised from the dead. They're gonna appear again when Jesus ascends into heaven, worshiping, and Revelation 5 says, the angels forever worship the Son of God who sits on the throne. God commands the angels to worship the Son and they are delighted to do so. But then in verse seven, we get really one of the only descriptions of angels in all of scripture. There's so little actually said about the angels. Have you noticed that? Very little described. Even this one describing to us is just quoting an Old Testament one. So it's the same one twice. 
the whole book, the whole Bible is pointing to the Savior, who he is, what he's done, what, what he has worked in our lives and our hearts and what he's like turning our hearts towards him. Do you think that's on purpose? That there's this much about angels and this much about the Lord Jesus? I think it is. But the, here's the little we have. We get a short description. He says, God makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So think about that. What is faster than wind in the ancient Near East? What is more powerful than fire? Angels are awe-inspiring beings. They are absolutely nothing like old Clarence Oddbody and It's a Wonderful Life. I didn't know that was his last name until this morning. Clarence Oddbody. Um, you know, what is the first thing that angels say in almost every encounter with human beings in Scripture? Don't be afraid. Don't freak out. Like, I'm not here to kill you. Everyone, like John, Revelation 19, John falls down to start to worship an angel. And the angel, quote, says, you must not do that. I'm just a servant like you of the true God. Worship the living God. If we think angels are amazing, if we are in awe with who and what they are, he says, consider the one they serve, the one they fall down before and before whom they worship. Even more so in Advent, we should consider how King Jesus, the one the mighty angels serve and worship, became infantile. The one above all these mighty beings worship became infantile, like an infant in speech, power, and being, so that he could make you like him in righteousness. So the writer of Hebrews gives us hope here between the advents because we follow King Jesus, whom the angels worship as his created servants. And really quick, our last point this morning, he proclaims that the Son is the righteous and eternal King. So look at verses 8 through 9. Writes, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, beyond your companions. So if we're struggling to live between the advents, if we're longing for that day when our minds will not betray us anymore, when our reason won't fail you, our bodies won't give out, he says, then be encouraged by this truth. Your king is eternal. His throne is forever and ever, and he is good. He says, the scepter of his kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. All right, so in the ancient Near East, the scepter, I'm sure you've seen and many of the stuff with the, the queen recently, like there's, all, there's a scepter that monarchs hold. It's a staff and it symbolizes their sovereignty. It symbolizes their power. In the ancient Near East, uh, they held the scepter and it was through which they communicated their verdict over people. So as the king sat there holding his scepter, you would enter his presence and in that moment, he had the power of life and death over you. If he extends the scepter, you're received into his presence and you live. If he withholds his scepter, you are escorted into a very bad place. The power of life and death. 
And that his, he had the last word over you. The scepter symbolizes authority's absolute. So let me ask you this. Who has the last word over you right now? Who has absolute authority over you? Whose opinion of you has that kind of power? Is there someone in your life whose voice is so much louder than all the others? Maybe no matter what your parents or friends say, you go to school and this person's criticism and sarcasm towards you drowns everything else out and it has, it is crushing. Maybe there's someone who's only pointing out Maybe in your family, all that you do wrong and never what you do right. And that is so loud, that word over you. Or maybe it's their silence. Maybe there's someone who's vowed to speak words of life over you. Words of affirmation, acknowledgement, encouragement. And they remain silent and withhold from you those very words. And your longing for their approval is deafening. But sadly, I think much of the time it's our own voice, isn't it? Like we are way harder on ourselves than anyone else. You're not good enough. This isn't enough for them to love you. You you don't have what it takes. You're not going to make it. We are far harder than ourselves. But Hebrews says, those people don't have the final word. They don't get to declare who you are. They don't get to decide. They don't get to say it. In fact, neither do you. It's Jesus. He has the final word over who you are. And this is the one who died to win you. The one who dearly loves you. Who came after you to give you his righteousness. He gets to say. And his final word is love. And guess what? His throne is forever. He's not leaving. It's eternal. And so look at the character of his kingdom. This is what he's working in us now. This is what he's going to bring in full at the second advent when Christ returns. He says, we will love goodness and righteousness as he does. We will hate wickedness. We won't feel engaged to the enemy any longer. He says, the oil of gladness will be for all people. I love that. The kingdom of God, gladness and righteousness. What are the two things we most lack? Those are the defining attributes of the kingdom of God, of the reign of Jesus in our lives and in this world. And it is going to be full and final on that day. And he's working it now. So this morning I just prayed this vision of Christ, whom angels bow before in worship, who's forever on the throne to secure your righteousness and gladness, I pray this encourage you this week as we rejoice that he has come. That sin is defeated. Evil is broken. And it is being worked in our lives now. And it is full and final on that day. The garden will be clear. So I pray that encourages you this morning as we study. Let me pray for us as we finish our time. Thank you, Lord, for becoming like us for taking on our weaknesses, for taking on our sufferings that you might know, you might sympathize, that you might ultimately redeem us, Lord. I am so thankful that you speak the final word over our lives. May we hear your voice even now, this week as we seek to follow you. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.